Welcome everybody to Soul Practice, Raw Conversations, Real Practices. I'm Phyllis Mathis. And I'm Kathy Escobar. And my kid's here again. <laughs> Yay. I know. We're so happy to have Jameson Escobar with us again for Soul Practice. And uh, Jameson was with us maybe a year ago. Is that right? Somewhere a year and a, a year and a half, I think. A year, a year and a half ago. So it's been a while. And um, in that time, Jameson left the Coast Guard and um, had finished up his master's degree in organizational leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, and then got hired by the LA Lakers um, organization as the very first diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator. And so basically, I mean, Jameson's been doing DEI stuff for a long time in college and then in his Coast Guard uh, career, but this is a new chapter. And this is obviously a big conversation that we always talk about here because it's all roads lead to power. And that is just how that's at the root of all of these conversations um, related to DEI. So we're just happy to learn from you, Jameson. He came to Refuge Advocates a couple of weeks ago and shared um, with us for our November meeting. And it's a, we just, I learned a lot every time. And so we're just happy to have you here and glad that you can come share just kind of some of the things that you're learning. Maybe give us an update on sort of where things are at for you and just kind of where you're at in this like uphill battle to really shift things that need to be shifted. Well, and also just start pretending like we're kindergartners, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of defining what DEI is, because I think those letters get thrown around, but if you're not paying attention because you don't have to, then it's um, it's easy to feel like we're behind the curve. So um, do you mind starting there? Of course. Yeah, no, no worries. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this work. And I've had plenty of conversations with both of you about this, frankly, is, is a lot of people feel like there's a high barrier to entry into talking about DEI and that kind of what you're talking about, Phyllis, where can you just define what diversity, equity, and inclusion means? And you'd be surprised at how many people stop the conversation just because they don't necessarily understand what those words even mean, right? And they feel like such big words because of how we as a society have started to think about them recently. Uh, But in reality, there's things that pretty much every person would want to be doing or be treated that way in their everyday lives. So diversity, right, is just a group of people and their diversity is what they're bringing to the table. That's just them, right? We all have things that are just us, what makes us diverse. You you are both white woman, women, but you have things that are different than you. That's your diversity into the group dynamic, right? I am a half Latino, half white, cis, straight male, right? There's a lot of different terminology, but all that is is just things that make me who I am. And so when we're talking about diversity, it's these differences from people in a certain, in a single group. And then when you go into the equity, right? Equity is uh, not to be confused with equality, but equity is the understanding that we want to make things equal for everybody. And the reason it's different than equality is equity takes into fact that other people have had different challenges put into their in front of them that they didn't necessarily. Um, earn or you know it wasn't their fault that they had those challenges uh this is kind of equity might be the toughest one for people to understand if we're being honest because this is where we get into the systemic aspect of dei where there are things that have been been put in place 
whether it's from a social perspective or a government perspective or or anything like that, that have made life um, not even more difficult, just put more barriers for other people. And equity is that understanding that we want everybody to be on an equal playing field, but some people are arriving to the playing field without a glove. So let's give them a glove. And so now we all have gloves, right? Uh, but that one, I think, is the one that throws people off a little bit. And then finally, inclusion is, I think that one's probably the easiest to define, right? It's people feeling like they are a part of the team, people feeling like they can be their true selves in a safe environment and they can bring them, bring, you know, that self or that part of themselves to their, to their team, to their group, to their social group or whatever it is. Um, and I think the most important part to remember with DEI is that all three of those are connected in a very specific way. If you want to achieve that, you know, that culture, that system of belonging, right? Diversity is important, but if the person uh, who is diverse isn't given equitable opportunities and isn't feeling included, then they're not going to be bring their diverse self, right? They're going to try and assimilate to the group. And now you're just getting a lot of more like-minded individuals who are saying the same things in order to fit in. You're not really getting that true value of diversity. Uh, so that's where that equity and inclusion comes into play. Because if you don't have those, then the diversity is not necessarily serving the purpose that you would want it to on a team, right? You want innovation, you want different people to come in with different opinions, um, but you really need all three in order to kind of get that point across. Thank you. Wow, that's cool. That's good. So what do you do every day in your job? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. How so, do you translate that into actual, you know, hours on the job? Yeah, and that's that's uh, one of the more difficult things I think a lot of practitioners face. Uh, and, and just on the front end, I'd like to say that all of everything I'm about to talk about is, you know, my beliefs, James and Escobar's beliefs. I'm not speaking on behalf of the Lakers or, or any other organization I've ever worked with or will work with in the future. Um, so with all, all that being said, when we talk about, you know, DEI as an actual uh, work, as the actual work, what you're doing as a practitioner, it can be really difficult for people to come into this space because, we have big ideas, we have things we want to do, right? You get into this work because you care about dismantling systemic oppression or treating people the way they want to be treated or creating, you know, fairness or connecting individuals. You have some probably altruistic reason why you got into this work. And then you get into the work and you realize that not everybody feels the same way as you. And not everybody necessarily wants you to be doing your job. And not everybody, even the people who have hired you might not even know how they want you to do the job and how it can serve their organization overall. And so when you start working, it can be, I know for me in both the Coast Guard and when I started with the Lakers, it was a lot of, wow, I'm on my own here. And that's okay, right? They hired you because you are, you are qualified to do the job, but it can be a little bit overwhelming because there's so many different things that you have to be doing. There's so many different things you have to be taking into account, whether it is for talking from the work structure, whether it's hiring, promotions, um, firings, right? Attrition rates, overall training and education, community outreach, you know, employee resource groups, all of these ter these big terms that your employer might not necessarily even know why they're important, right? But you know, they're important. So it's, it's a lot of uh, 
it's a lot of research. It's a lot of understanding what the organizational culture is. So you can mm. make those changes around what, you know, is acceptable, right? If I was given a blank slate, there's plenty of things I'd want to be doing, but I'm not given a blank slate. We're not given blank slates. There are cultures that already exist. So how do you adapt your DEI philosophy to that culture in order to make the changes? And I think the hardest thing for me as a practitioner over the past eight or nine years has been recognizing that the people I'm working with might not necessarily see it the same way. And that's okay. We can come to an agreement to actually make real change that might not necessarily be you know, the grand idea that I have, but this, this thing is a process, right? You have to put that uh, groundwork down in order to get people to understand what like what diversity is, what equity is, what inclusion is before you can really start attacking some of the the higher level ideas of you know systemic oppression and dismantling racism and whatnot. Those are tough topics to talk about, right? And so even though I as a practitioner know how to talk to that, about them and feel comfortable, the organization might not. So you have to be able to put that groundwork and really make long lasting programs and work with your employer or your your coworkers or whatever it is to make sure that what you're putting into effect right now is going to stand, you know, for the next four or five years. So you can get to those higher level um, topics that will probably help push the systemic aspect of your organization in, in the way you're, you want it to go. Don't you think too, Oh, go ahead, Phyllis. No, uh, you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was just thinking that as I was listening to you that like it all, it's all connected. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of talking about or, your organization because that's what you do, you know, all day long. Like, Phyllis, what do you do all day long is work on this, but it's all the same systems, just little micro systems. So families, groups, you know, clubs that people are in, like all the different little pockets of where people gather and live and dedicate some part of their life to, it's kind of all the same. Like you just, you kind of like have to start at the most basic level and it's really the human level. And it's also the part that I appreciate about you is kind of that graciousness about it, but also challenge Mm-hmm. And um, that you need both. You can't just be all grace. Like, oh, you know, we, grace Grace is just like, we're always learning. We can never hit it right. And, you know, that kind of thing isn't very helpful because we should be doing better. But also when it's always the barriers are so big or the things are so big, like everyone just wants to give up because they feel like they can't really contribute. It's like it's too far of a reach So I was thinking about accessibility and making some of these things more accessible for people Um, and what that's like, what that's been like for you, just kind of in all the circles, because, you know, we come where we live, you know, is really hard. These conversations are really hard in our, we all live in the same neighborhood. Jameson doesn't live here anymore, but, you know, it's hard. There's resistance to equity in Northwest Arvada. Mm -hmm. There is. Yeah, and I think that is the the hardest, that was the hardest pill for me to swallow when I first started working as a practitioner and something that I deal with every single day is that idea of accessibility and how do I make, you know, the training or the program that I'm creating, um, how do I make it so it's not turning people off, right? Because those are, they're big words and people are scared and people might have some resistance to equity based on where they grew up or who they're surrounding themselves with. Even though I'm sure if you talk to every single person, 
one-on-one. They like the idea of equity. They like the idea of inclusion, but these words unfortunately have become, you know, um, buzzwords in the political landscape that we have that has made people very resistant to it, even though it's not that big of a deal. And so I think when I talk about, or when you talk about, you know, accessibility and graciousness and whatnot, two, two first things came to my mind. Human beings innately just put people into boxes. It's what we do, right? And so me as a practitioner, I am, I try to be as upfront with the fact that I do that with people as much as possible. So they don't, they don't think that I'm coming at them as a, hey, you should do this talking down from my soapbox, right? I do it too. We all have biases. We all have, we, we love to group people. It makes it easier for us to understand the world, right? Uh, and so rec- like letting people know that I'm not better than you in this regards. Maybe I'm a little bit more practiced in it. Maybe I have a little bit better understanding of the negative effects of putting people in boxes. I still do it every day. Every single person, every single DEI practitioner, I don't care who you're talking to or talking about, does this every single day, right? So saying that to people, I think, helps kind of disarm them and lets them know that this person is not necessarily talking down to me. They're truly invested in, you know, bettering me, my soft skills as a leader, as a person, um, instead of, you know, preaching at me and telling me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, and so that's that's the first big thing. As a practitioner, making accessible, let people know that you have gone through what they are going through and you are currently going through what they're going through, right? You don't just lose your biases. That's not how bias works. The second one, though, and this is the hardest one, is because that that's kind of more the grace aspect you were talking about, right? Hey, we all we all have we all mess up sometimes. It's okay. The second one, and is the the much more difficult one, is that accountability, right? And so, how do you now people kind of maybe think you're on their level because you've you've gone down to their level as an as an educator, as a teacher, as a facilitator, but now how do you create that accountability? And that's where it's really important that the the material that you're putting forward, the the programs that you're creating directly affect that person at a at a day-to-day level. Um, and whether that is like bring up personal stories, you know, to jog emotional reactions or putting in actual processes from an organizational standpoint that force them to to do things, right? Because then that's going to start to become more natural and they'll that accountability piece takes over. Uh, and so, you know, they've already understand that you're not trying to like single them out or anything. And now they know that the ex- what the expectations are for creating a more inclusive work environment or or family environment or or whatever that looks like. And so once you can kind of get those uh, that accountability piece that actually people have to you know recognize and reckon with, then you can start to see those changes. But it's you know that part's really difficult because people don't like to change. Change is hard. <laughs> change is change is scary. We all know that. Everybody's scared of change. Uh, and so once you start to put these processes in place, that's when you're going to get the biggest blow uh, blowback, in my opinion. Reckoning with people is is not that difficult for me, at least. I don't know because if you kind of just come down to people's levels and recognize that we all are a part of this kind of fucked up society that has taught us to do this way. They'll agree with that because I think deep down, everybody can kind of feel it at at a core level. Even if they don't let it out, they can feel that at a core level. 
But now when you ask them to really change, that's the, <laughs> that's where it's a little bit scary. They're like, oh, I was with you until you, <laughs> until you told me to do something different. Then I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Now I'm out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that um, systems of power and particularly our white people, white people power, um, mm -hmm. we're always afraid we're going to lose something. Like if we include other people or if we get more educated and we open up the circle to include more people and uh, with equity, then there's only so many pieces of the pie kind of thing. And so I'm wondering if you encounter that or if you have like a strategy for how do you convince people that it's good for everybody? Yeah, and I keep saying this is the toughest part. I guess this makes me realize how tough the work is because uh, it's all tough. And it's it's so, and this kind of ties into the, a lot of the issues facing DEI you know, politically right now is this misnomer that, yeah this is an expense of white straight men, which is not true. At least for me as a practitioner, there might be some practitioners that want that. My mentality, and I can, again, I can only speak from Jameson Escobar's point of view. My point of view is there is more than enough room at any table, especially in these systems of power where it's a very small group already in charge. There's more than enough room at any table for the table to grow instead of the people to have to leave the table in order for other people. I never want my work to be seen at the expense of others, right? Because that's the antithesis of inclusion. That's the antithesis of belonging. And, and if we're being honest, I think a lot of the reason there are so many issues facing DEI right now from a legislative point of view is because that that point has been lost by some practitioners. And, and if we're going to make systemic changes as a people, as a group, you need that white male straight perspective because that's a person who lives in this society, right? Mm -hmm. Now that person has to be willing to cede some space and mm -hmm. open up their table. I'm not, I'm not saying it's all on us, whatever, and we have to work around them, right? The original idea behind inclusion and inclusive practices is the system opens itself around other people. People don't, you know, go straight. They don't have to work their way into the system, but the table is big enough for everybody. And we all know it's big enough for everybody. Yeah. And the same people who are scared of losing their spot at the table also know that it's big enough for everybody. And, um, but it's, it's, it's difficult to get that point across because that's, that has been one thing that um, anti DEI people have been able to really harp on is if you're into this, then you're gonna you're gonna lose your job. You're gonna lose your place in college. Your kids are gonna you know go to less good schools. This, that, or the other thing, which isn't true. But you know, as a lot of the, these things in society, um, lies can be taken as facts and turned into real strategies that can affect people who are trying to make positive changes within you know society or, or organizations or anything like that. Yeah, it's like it's like. The myth is, I mean, I think power structures are inherently paranoid in our culture, yes, you yes. know, so, um, so, and that's a pretty strong, strong thing. I, I find it really, it makes me smile to think that there are corporations out there who are hiring DEI practitioners mm -hmm. and they don't really know what they're, what they're in for. In a way. I mean, maybe they do, but, but really maybe they don't know what they're in for and so it puts you in a it must put you in a position where you're like all right I get to create 
a thing that they tell me they really want. So I really want to create the thing they tell me that they want, but they may not, you know, I might have to convince them that they really still want it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, yeah, I, I had a client who worked in an industry where she was the regulation, this the regulator, and like she worked as a regulation officer in an industry that was just like the wild west. And so mm-hmm. it, it kind of put her in a position where you hired me to tell you how you're not complying. It was compliance officer. You're not complying here. And then they became the target of, well, what do you do? You know what I'm saying? So it's a hard, I wonder how that is. If you're experienced any, or any of your colleagues experienced that like people in other, other corporations or industries where they're walking that line around, okay, well, here's what we say that we want. And so here's how we get where we're going. And so don't shoot the messenger kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll start there and then I'll kind of give you some examples that I've had as a practitioner or seen, I guess, in general, um, you know, from an organizational top level mindset, it is great that people are hiring these roles. But the next step is making sure that you're empowering the people you've hired, right? And giving them that full level of support. And the hardest thing is when the practitioner comes to you and says, this is what I need your support to look like, doing that, believing them, you know, actually empowering them in the way they need to be empowered, the way they're telling you to be empowered. Uh, Because once you can get that top level support, then you're we're all good at what we do. We are, we're all doing this for the right reasons. And we all have visions that are sustainable under certain circumstances. So if you can give them a blank check and say, Hey, we care about diversity inclusion more so than just wanting to have somebody in this role to check a box. Like we actually are committed to this, then empower your people and your people will do the rest. And then you'll reap reap the benefits. And like, that's one thing from an organizational standpoint, there's been so many studies that have showed High-performing teams with diverse members are way more productive, way more innovative. Mm-hmm. They are always at the top of any of their respective industries. Like there's real capitalistic upside to investing in diversity and inclusion. It just takes a little bit of time. And it's hard. the return on investment takes a little bit of time. But if you can commit yourself to that, then you're going to make a big difference. And And I think when you look at organizations right now, especially in 2023, um, they're kind of at a crossroads where in 2020, the entire industry of diversity and inclusion just skyrocketed, which was unfortunately at the result of George Floyd's murder, right? A lot of organizations started to say, we need diversity and inclusion. We need this. We need that, whatever. But they didn't necessarily know how they wanted it to go, right? And so they invested a lot of things up front, but it wasn't, wasn't, um, long lasting. There was no vision strategically for the future. And so now we're at this weird crossroads where some of those programs are about to fall off. And and some people are like, ooh, maybe we shouldn't have been as committed as we thought we were. Mm. Um, And maybe we should pull this back. Maybe we should cut some funding and whatnot, which is the wrong mindset to have, right? Because like I said, these things take time. Any any organizational systemic change takes years. Look at just Mm -hmm look at our country, right? And how long it's taken laws to go in effect and you actually see the change. 
Um, and so I have seen and heard from a lot of different practitioners, especially when I was in the military of like, we're going to invest a lot of this stuff, right? We're going to invest a lot of money. We're going to put you through this course. You're going to come out, you're going to change the world. And then you go through the course and they're like, uh, yeah, I think that was enough. We, we did our job, <laughs> yeah. right. And that is the worst thing you can do as an organization because a, you burn out your practitioners, right? And it's really hard. This is hard work. All of us are in work that it's hard. And so we know that like when you burn out, you're you're burned out for a while. Right? It's hard to get back up. That's one. Two, and probably more important, honestly, because the practitioners will always be there. But two, you have showed the rest of your organization how you actually feel about diversity inclusion, right? And how you actually feel about diversity inclusion is you don't really care, right? And so when I, when I was, like, and I can say this, when I was in the military, I did that. I went through a course. I was ready to go. I was ready to to change the world one training at a time. And I finished and they're like, yeah, you can't do anything for the next six months. I'm like, well, what am I, what, what am I supposed to do now? What, and what message is that sending to all the people that I put the groundwork on? I'm like, Hey, I was setting up trainings. We're going to do this, that. And they're like, Nope. And so from an organizational standpoint, once you start to pull back, even if the only investment you've made is hiring somebody in that role, and maybe making a statement, once you pull back even a little bit, the rest of your employee workforce is going to pull back with you and they're gonna put up even more of a guard. Because as we talked about in the beginning, people are scared about talking about this stuff. People aren't comfortable talking about this stuff. They're looking for excuses to get out. So you've given them an excuse and now you've hamstrung your practitioner who you hired and they're gonna burn out. And then it's just gonna, the same cycle is gonna happen and it's gonna continue on, you know, and that's. That's been the name of the game for this type of work for ever, frankly, at a lot of organizations. It makes me think, uh, I mean, we're so short-sighted in everything. So that's, and this is like a piece of soul practice that we're always talking about, that really this work is soul work. This is like deep, long haul, lifetime practicing the, our humanity work. That's really what it is. And no one likes to do it. <laughs> like no yeah. one likes to do that shit. Hard. Yes. And this is like part of it. It's why we Phil said I always talk about like the message. This I felt this way my whole life and related to trying to create equitable and um, inclusive community. There's just like always been so much resistance to it in typical systems. And then when you create something like we've created at the refuge, which is beautiful, like the wider world doesn't really value it with financial resources and support and all things are like, Oh, we love what you're doing, you know? And so we're glad you could do it over there, but like, really we don't fit into what the systems are. So the biggest part I just, as I'm listening is that everything, you know, everything's connected. And I was thinking about something that Phyllis shared um, years and years ago. This is so long ago, Phyllis, probably at least 10 years ago, because it was at, our new building at the refuge. And you talked about, and this is in the subversive soul too, in some places, these two loops, um, you know, the fear and shame, all roads lead to fear and shame. Every time, everything about everything always leads to fear and shame. And so, and that's the, you know, what ifs on the fear and then the I suck on the shame. And so like, it's so at play in this conversation. And this is that in the wider system, we know like the Supreme Court, fucking Florida and Texas and, you know, all these things that are happening that are restricting um, 
DEI work is out of fear. And, and for personal, because when, when I hear you say practitioner, I'm so grateful that there are like dedicated practitioners in systems, which is so important, but like everybody who's like wanting to contribute in different ways is a, is a type of practitioner. Mm -hmm. And so like, I can take every single thing that you said and like translate it to people who are not in those roles, who are just want things to be better and different. And are trying to say, Hey, we need to think about this. We need to um, think about accessibility and we need to think, have these hard conversations together. And, you know, like it, it all fits. Um, But that uh, the fear is this huge block. And then we feel shame, some of us, especially who are white resource, you know, all the privilege in the world, then get stuck in shame. And we don't like people scratching our shame because when we have to admit <laughs> how we really feel, and then that creates more shame. So um, I think that this work is just so complicated. But I am kind of wondering like what you're bumping into just even personally, but for sure, in with people like breaking down some of that fear and shame because that's our only path forward mm-hmm. is breaking that down like we're not going to get there in fear and shame we're going to have to get there in soul and humility and depth and in this slow different place than fear and shame as these reactions yeah and and first uh when you talk about bumping up again i, I do want to just you know let everybody know, educate people, whoever is listening on some of the things that are going on nationwide right now in regards to DEI. And then I can get into kind of the personal fear and shame and and whatnot. So for starters, uh, as of July of this year, 2023, there are 40 different anti-DEI bills uh, brought to different states. 40. Uh, 40, yes. And legislation passed in five states, Florida, North Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas. So in those or yeah, in those five states, there is restrictive laws against any DEI practitioner and what they're doing. A lot of it has to do with funding at public universities and colleges. In those states, a lot of public universities and colleges don't have DEI people anymore. Right? They just they just don't. There's no diversity and inclusion officer for a school made up of young people who are diverse, right? And so that's a scary thought. Uh, And an even scarier and and tougher thought, and this isn't specifically DEI, but it's, you know, all a part of identity and inclusion. And I don't think we have talked about this enough as a society and honestly, as practitioners, frankly, Um, this is from the ACLU. So in this year, or this year, there has been 508 anti-LGBTQ bills in the United States. That's pretty much almost double the amount of days that have happened so far. Mm-hmm. And um, that's scary. That's a really scary thought. Mm-hmm. Because we are now attacking a certain group of people in a way that we haven't really done specifically in a while at least in my lifetime that i've been knowledgeable of of. and from a you know from a dei practitioner standpoint obviously like the anti-dei bills those are their own set of challenges and those are those are those hurt and those are tough but for me personally i can figure my way around that right i had to do it in the military plenty of times that's what it is there's always going to be these weird 
let's attack DEI as an amorphous thing. We can we can work our way. We we're good enough at our jobs that we can figure it out. But when you read and you see 508 anti-LGBTQ bills in the United States, most of them or a lot of them focus specifically on children and youth, it just breaks your heart, honestly. And it just like it just doesn't make you feel good. And it it's hard because it's a reminder of why the work is so important. And when I see things like that, I just I wish I didn't have a job. I wish my job wasn't important. I wish things like this didn't happen, didn't come out. I you know I wish I could be in finance or tech or something else because we didn't have 508 anti-LGBTQ bills brought to you know brought to the floor in 2023. And it just shows you that we have made a lot of progress as a society and we're always we're always going to make we're always going to make that progress but man we got a lot we got a long ways to go. And when I think of like you know the when I when I try to um, talk about this stuff with people, my big takeaway is I know for a fact that what I'm doing is going to win. If you look at the world, society, the the inclusive, the connecting practices and mindsets, they always win. Look where we started, you know, in this country 400 years ago, and look to where we are now. We're on an upward trajectory. However, that does not mean it doesn't suck and feel really not great when you're in these lull periods. And we're definitely in a lull period right now. And it's scary. But that is that's why we're here. That's why we're doing the job is so we can get our ways out. But we know like I can take solace whenever I'm done working, whenever I've you know left this earth for whatever reason, I can take solace knowing that the work that I did was meaningful and will win. I'm on the winning side. We're on the winning side. People who are engaging in meaningful conversations around this are on the winning side. But man, does it hurt when you're losing? Man, does it hurt when you see 508 anti-LGBTQ bills and 40 pieces of anti-DEI legislation and a presidential election where actual people are running on anti-DEI um, platforms. You're like, my job might be illegal in a year potentially. And this is why it's important for people to not be scared of DEI, right? This is why it's important for us to recognize that that fear and the shame are not ways to drive your yourself further. Um, so, sorry, I had to get on my soapbox right there because this is oh. something that's been on my mindset for a long time. And it's like, yeah. I ta I'll talk to people and I'll say, my job might be illegal federally next year. And their response will be, oh, well, you live in California. You work in California, so it's fine. And I'm like, that is not the point. I didn't get into this work because I wanted to change the Lakers or change California. I got in this work because I wanted to change the system of systems of oppression that have existed for far too long in this country. And when you federally make it illegal, that's really hard to do. Um, and so uh, I got a little off topic there too. So, you know, <laughs> well, I just want, can I just jump in there for a second? Yes, please. I think I will even, um, at least for me, I always forget that there's backlash. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's movement forward, there's brutal backlash. So when George Floyd was murdered, there was this huge outcry. We have got to get a handle on this, you know, and then it felt like a, a surge of, all right, things can change now. And, and then there's this, bam, this backlash from mm -hmm. the systemic kind of, from the systems and the people in the systems who are like freaked out because now suddenly they're, 
whatever is is threatened. So, but backlash is just part of the deal. It and, is, and, and it, I always forget that that's true. Yeah, and it all goes back to, and you you all say it all the time, and it's something that resonates with me that, that all roads always lead back to that power. And you look at you look at George Floyd is a really good example, like of this is people in power, their human humanity was shocked in a way that they couldn't actually they couldn't do what they normally do to hold on to their power, right? Yeah. Because it was horrible. Seeing that is horrible. People aren't used to seeing that, especially white males who are just so insulated from the realities of living as a marginalized person in this country. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there's a second where that power got dropped because like, wow, that is an awful thing to see and it, to actually have to feel it and experience it. But all lead all roads lead back to power and you lose your you 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 um give your humanity a little bit and then you start to realize as time passes and you get a little far distance oh wait i'm giving way too much up now i'm not in charge anymore now i need this now i need that and you clinch your power up and now you have to come back at a real force in order to counteract the mindset you had right if you look at like some of those more conservative media pre- people who were all talking about how horrible it was that the police would do that and how hard it was to see it. If you look at probably six months after what their mindset was about police and DEI stuff, it was probably double what it was before yeah. because they overreact. You overreact to course correct for the humanity that you showed, which when you say it like that realizes how fucked up the system is, yeah, yeah, honestly, so for lack worse. of a better term. Yeah. Oh, no um, other way to say it. Yeah, exactly. And and so, but it always is that that power struggle of, I don't want to, and it's that misnomer again. It all, like, if I'm giving up power, that means um, somebody else has taken my spot and I'm going to lose this. It's not the goal. I just I need to re- reiterate that over and over. It is not the goal of diversity and inclusion to have people feeling othered it's the goal of everybody to feel like they're a part of the team and everybody has that um psychological safety to be themselves and the psychological safety needs to exist for the white male just as much as it needs to exist for the black female the problem is the hard part about it is um that doesn't exist for the black female right now and you need to make the white male understand that and change a little bit of how he reacts and interacts to create that psychological safety. And then you can always have that conversation of like, all right, I'm the white male. I don't feel psychologically safe. All right, let's talk about whatever. But you need to be able to give something up a little, not give something up, but come down to somebody's level in order to create that safety. Yeah. It's mostly just giving up fear. It's, it's like, I just yeah. keep thinking, is it really that great on the top? I mean, I there's this uh, James Baldwin quote that I just, it just keeps sticking in my mind. Um, and he meant it specifically against about white people where he said, white people just live such vacuous lives, you know, mm-hmm. and it really hit me that we, we have this protected privileged way of living, but is it really that great? Or is it just kind of, and how enriched would we be if we bring more people to the table? And that's the I think that's the thing we miss because we have this scarcity mindset, which we're trained to have Mm -hmm. is that it's more fun when you get more diverse and it's more, it's richer. It's a richer existence in any workplace, 
in any any Thanksgiving table, you know, whatever, is that everyone gains, everyone can gain. But if you're paranoid and afraid that you're going to lose some privilege that you're clinging to building bigger fences and better security systems and blah, 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 how happy, like how fulfilling is it actually? So that's just my comment about white culture. No, it's a good point. And it, it all comes like fear and shame. It, I didn't fully think about that until we're just having these conversations right now, at least in how those two interact together. But it is that fear of change. Even though your life might not be that good, it's scary to think of it in any other way, right? Mm-hmm. You, no matter what, because humans are just resistant to change. It's like we two things I know about humans. We love putting people in boxes and we hate change. Right. Yeah. And so that's where that, that that's fear, true. that fear comes from. And, um, you know, one thing that I kind of like to just say is when I do these, when I, when I talk to people about DEI and whatnot, is let them know, A, what their fears are, can you can kind of name their fears and, and B, like how to maybe get over that fear. And what are ways that you as an advocate or as a person can actually feel comfortable talking about these topics of DEI, right? And these, and being more open to the change. So like, for example, some, some common DEI fears that people have, at least as far as participating in the conversation is like this idea of uh, that's an imposter syndrome, right? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not educated enough on what diversity, equity, inclusion means, or what, you know, prefer or uh, preferred pronouns are, or, or what systemic oppression is. So I'm scared to I'm scared to you know engage because I don't I have that imposter syndrome. A, a little part of that also is like you know asking offensive questions. I don't want to be offensive. I'm an advocate. I care. I actually care about this, but I don't know how to ask those questions without potentially offending people. Um, and and kind of in that same vein, just the idea of ignorance. I don't want to be ignorant. I'm scared to be ignorant. I have a fear that people are going to judge me because of that ignorance. And, you know, those three things, if you kind of can connect the theme, it's a lack of understanding and education. And that is what's creating that fear. That's what's perpetuating that that discomfort, right, of um, engaging in these conversations. And so I, I, I have thought a lot about how do you kind of get over that fear? Uh, because... And, this, this will be my, my last point. I know we're coming close to time here. When I look at making systemic changes in an organization, I kind of group people into three different thirds, right? There's one third, which are the people that are always going to be on your side. You actually don't really have to worry about them too much because they're always going to be on your side. They agree with you. There's another third on the other side that's never, ever, ever going to agree with you. And that's just a fact of the reality. They're never going to agree with you. You don't have to worry about them either because it's not worth your time or your energy. But there's this middle third, and this is the uneducated middle third as I was talking about who are, this is the most fearful of the of the three, right? And if you can get them onto your side, if you can kind of show them why it's important to value diversity and why their life is going to be more enriched and their organization is going to be better off and more high-performing teams and all of those buzzwords we as practitioners like to throw around, if you can convince them of that, then they're going to be on your side, right? But they're scared. 
And it's important for you as not just a practitioner, but as an advocate, as an ally, as whatever you want to label yourself as, you recognize that fear and you can kind of show them how to get past it. So for me, if somebody comes to me and I've had friends come to me and be like, listen, I, I just don't even know how to talk about this. I don't, I don't, I'm not anti, I'm not pro. I just don't know how to talk about it. That's that fear kind of setting in their mind. I, I've thought long and hard on like, what are some easy-ish, not easy, but simple tasks to do um, and things you can do to your soul and your mindset. So I have four. So I'll give you these four and then we can kind of wrap up here. Uh, the first one, and I'm actually wearing it as a shirt for if, if people could see it. The first one is be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Like you're going to be, if you really are trying to advocate for people, you're going to be put in uncomfortable positions and you got to, this is more soul work, right? You got to be comfortable with that. You got to talk to yourself and recognize that you're going to feel discomfort. That's okay. And that's part of the growing process. That's how you get, that's how you get rid of the fear because you realize it's not that bad. After that is accept accountability. You know, if you're a white, straight, cis male, uh, recognize that there have been systems that have been put in place that have made it easier for you and not easy for other people. And accepting that accountability is not you saying, oh, I'm perpetuating all of this hate and whatever. No, it's you just recognizing, like accepting accountability on behalf of the system in general. And when you go and talk to your your BIPOC friends or your LGBTQ friends, it's recognizing that, hey, like you counted, this system sucks and I'm sorry about that, but I'm here to learn how to make it better for you. That's what the accepting accountability is. I think people, a lot of white people, frankly, feel like, oh, why am I getting, you know, why are you blaming me for things that happened 400 years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago? Nobody's blaming you for anything. You're just not recognizing that that's affecting us right now. That's the problem. So that's where that accountability piece comes from. Next one, and this is, I would say, probably the most difficult one is look for educational opportunities, right? So how are you going to break yourself out of your bubble? Now, you could come to me or any of you two or any advocates you know in your life, and they can put you in the right direction, but that can be scary for some people, right? Um, but finding those educational opportunities to teach yourself that it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal. Like the cultures are not as, um, other cultures are not as scary as the media might make you think they are. Um, putting yourself in those situations is a really good way for you to learn and also have those emotional connections and those emotional changes because when you're, you know, when you're learning about other cultures, you can kind of feel that, feel that energy. And then finally, and uh, I know I said this about the last one, but this is the hardest one because people don't like to do this. And it's listen to understand, don't listen to respond. When you're, you know, when you're trying to overcome your fears, your fears will get a lot, it'll, you'll have a lot less um, pushback and discomfort when you're talking to people, if you're actually listening to understand their point of view. And this is something for me, even as a practitioner that I struggle with, because when you're talking to, you know, Again, I hate to do this to my white straight male because we've name dropped them so many times. But when you're talking to those people who are very against what I'm doing, it can be very hard for me to listen to understand, right? But if I'm listening to respond and I'm not hearing what they're saying, then they're never going to ever give me the time of day, nor should they, right? Because I wouldn't give people the time of day that are not going to listen to me to understand my point of view. So it's really important, especially if you're trying to like push yourself into DEI work, that when you're talking to somebody about their experience, when you're asking for their point of view, when you're 
trying to learn more, you are present and you're listening and actually listening to understand what they're saying. Because if you're just going to respond, then they're not going to want to share as much information with you. They're not going to feel psychologically safe being in your presence. And honestly, it's going to, it's that fee, all of your fears will be realized at that point, which is not what we want. So everybody just needs to learn how to listen, to understand, not to respond. Easier said than done. I know. Uh, and so, you know, we could talk about this for the next hour, probably easily. Yeah. Uh, but those are some like those four things. And I'll say them again, but I, I think people can, if they really talk to themselves, to their soul and and want to overcome some of their fears, these are ways that you can kind of do it. And it's not, it's not too, um, too difficult to you. So the first one is, again, be comfortable being uncomfortable. The second one is accept accountability. The third one is look for educational opportunities. And the fourth one is listen to understand. Mm. So good, Jema. Oh my Excellent. God. Yes. And this is where I have hope for the future, honestly. Yeah. Because, you know, we are in a really important part of history and um, uphill. And that's why I'll just say for us, the, those of us that are in our older years, you know, and that the top half of things that we need to really support young people changing culture and we need to participate also too. We don't get to just like hand it over and say, all right, we fucked it up. You guys figure it out. Like we mm-hmm. all can play, but we do need to help uh, change agents like Jameson and so many others that I know she- like feel supported with a lot of resistance. And one way that we can help that is by changing. (laughs) So, you know, that's like one of the greatest gifts we can give is not just like, yay, you, it's actually doing things differently. And I know my kids like help me, they correct me. And it's hard sometimes some of their accountability sucks, but (laughs) they help me with blind spots. So as we wrap up just really quick, like last one little thought for the soul, Jameson, and maybe one practice. I think some of those were practices that were pretty tangible. Just one last thought, um, and then we're going to, and I'll go, come to you, Phyllis, and we'll wrap up. Okay, yeah. So for, for the soul, uh, yeah, we talked about this a little bit, but from I'm taking talking about this from the mindset of like as an advocate, as somebody who's trying to engage in DEI work. For the soul, my suggestion would be be mindful of what your intentions and what your why is as to why you want to engage as an advocate. Really ask yourself that question because that's can be that can be your anchor point, right? You know, for me, I want to change systemic. Uh, I want to or just get rid of systemic oppression, right? That's my anchor point when I'm doing DEI work, and that helps me overcome my fear because I'm mindful of that, and it allows me to continue, right? But that's a lot of soul work, being mindful. You have to really ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself in these situations? Because I don't necessarily have to. Um, so that's for the soul. And then for overall practice, uh, outside of the, you know, the four things I already said, and this is really important for advocates and practitioners alike, surround yourself with people who give you positive energy right? And that might not be your employer, unfortunately. Sometimes you're not in this in a space where your employer can do that. When I was in the Coast Guard, that was, that was definitely true. It was hard for me to get that energy, even when I was doing these trainings and these educational opportunities. But I can find that network of support that gives me that energy, whether it's you two talking on this or my friends or other practitioners. But if you're going to engage in this stuff, it's difficult. And we don't want you to burn out because uh, when you burn out, everybody is at a loss, right? 
So finding people who can give you that energy, can give you that support, make you remember your why, your intention uh, is is really important. And it's it's a practice that I think people kind of forget about sometimes. So good. So good. Phyllis, last thought, all. Uh, well, um, you know, bring it down to the super personal. I just want, I, I was reminding myself that you know, fear and shame is a big part of, we talked about that, you know, today quite a bit, but your art, my soul is not afraid and my soul is not ashamed. And so if I'm experiencing fear and shame, that's coming from a, a part of me that that's not the most central. And so just, just that, that sense of just that reminder, there's a, there's something inside me that's neither afraid nor ashamed. And so I can draw on that as I move forward to do hard things. Mm, so good. Love it. And I mean, I think the practice that just really comes to mind is just circling back to Jameson's first one and the shirt that he's wearing. It's just like live with the discomfort. We just need to practice living with it and say it, do it, try it, practice it, do something instead of nothing and um and just live with it we're humans and um we need to practice we're going to make mistakes i've said so many stupid things over time but i'm glad that i at least tried Mm -hmm. and and then i get back up and we get back up and that we need each other to get back up we need that encouragement and that hope and that comes from making sure we have our our people that help us um not to help us feel comfortable, you know, as in like ease, but kind of can support us so that when we're out in these places, we can live with the discomfort better. We can kind of get some relief and then we can keep practicing. So Jameson, we love you. We're thank- thankful for the work that you're doing. I am super grateful. You ins- keep inspiring us. And um, yeah, thanks for listening to Soul Practice and for helping um, us keep doing, keep it on, keep it on. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's great to talk with all of you and uh, look forward to to working together again in the future. Yeah, but I awesome. appreciate it. Soul Thank Practice you, is James. still one of my favorite podcasts. So. Yay! Yay! <laughs> You're one of our favorite gift guests. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Unplugged and raw. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.